If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Are humans any good at making decisions? And are we motivated by reason? Or are humans evolved to make social and emotional decisions, relying on the value and importance of crowd responses? On today's episode, we're asking whether the best strategy for survival is emotion or reason. Joining us remotely to discuss rationality is Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, Dan Ariely, Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science at Yale, Paul Bloom, and Director of the UCL Center for Digital Public Health in Emergencies, Patty Koskova. And you can ask the question, are we getting more stupid? How can it be that we die so frequently because of bad decision-making? If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Ganesh Taylor. So, without any further ado, um, I'd like to proceed to uh, inviting you all to uh, basically giving me your three-minute pitches on the following subject, right? So, Paul, do we need to wise up and get more rational about our decisions? Thank you. Um, my friend Anne Ariely, as you said, writes bestsellers with the word irrationality in the title. And he makes the point over and over again that we're often bad at being rational. And I think he's exactly right. I think, in fact, at some level, he has to be right. We're animals, we're not angels, and our brains have evolved for a world very different from this one. And so when our Stone Age minds get confronted with a global pandemic affecting billions of people, we can do poorly. So as one example, we're really bad at risk assessment. We use a heuristic where the salience of an event is a cue to how probable it is. And so we radically overestimate odds of low-frequency events like mass shootings and shark attacks and radically underestimate the probability of, of highly frequent but more mundane events like heart attacks or strokes or deaths by alcohol. As another example, and this is what I, part of what I wrote my book about, our moral decisions are strongly biased by emotions, sometimes leading us astray. So there's all sorts of laboratory studies showing that we don't like to deal with trade-offs when it comes to being good, to helping others. And we actually distrust people who make such trade-offs. And this is a serious problem, particularly now, given that any intelligent approach to lockdown, school closures, quarantines, vaccination, has to involve a complex balance between cost and benefit. 
So if the question is, do we need to wise up and get more rational with our decision? The answer is absolutely. At the same time, I think we overstate how stupid we are. I think we're a lot more rational than we give ourselves credit for. And I'll make three quick points about this. First, 2020 has been an enormous success story for the paradigmatic example of human rationality, which is the practice of science. If there are still any skeptics in the world <clears throat> about whether science captures truths about objective reality, I'd be quite happy if you'd hand me over your vaccine when it's your turn to get it, because I personally am very low down the queue. Second, we have goals other than truth. So in the middle of the summer last year in the United States, there were large rallies for Donald Trump. And many people, including many epidemiologists, said these are going to cause many deaths due to infections, grossly irresponsible. Three weeks later, there were much larger rallies for Black Lives Matter. And many of the same people, including many epidemiologists, were either silent about it or said, it's fine, don't worry about it. Now, this might look like irrationality, but it better reflects the fact that people have multiple goals. We have social and moral goals. Most of the experts, at least in the States, have liberal politics, and they thought the Black Lives Matter rallies were just and the Trump rallies were not. And this is what dictated their response. Similarly, we shouldn't take people who reject these experts and necessarily say they're being stupid. Maybe they just recognize that these experts might have different priorities than their own. Finally, I agree, we're sometimes irrational, ruled by our hearts and not our heads, but we can also step back and deliberate over how well we're doing um, and try to get better at it. And this is a tremendously powerful form of, of rationality. And it's exactly what we're gonna do now. Hmm. Okay, great. Thanks for that, Paul. I mean, yes, Patty, what do you think? Do we need to wise up and get more rational about our decisions? What are your thoughts? Thank you so much. This is an exciting question because it is kind of worded in a way we should wise up and become more rational in order to live our lives more uh, intelligently. And I think the question isn't posed correctly. I think we are rational and emotional animals. We are a mixture of humans determined by, obviously, our knowledge, what we know, our attitudes, and also the emotional and spiritual component of our beings is often neglected, but it is very important when key decisions are being made. And obviously, the most glaring example for someone in the, from the UK is the vote of Brexit. It was by no means a rational vote. It was entirely an emotional vote where people were projecting their ideas, their beliefs, their values, their satisfaction, dissatisfaction into, you know, on a, on a paper, simple question. But in reality, the complexity of it wasn't absolutely not rationally grasped. The Russian evidence was absolutely clear what's going to happen post January 2021. It was an emotional decision. So, how do we take it from there? I think we need to better understand what we as the humans are. How do we change our behavior, taking into consideration the cognitive component, the rational knowledge part of our beings, but also the attitudes and the emotions. And I will just give you an example um, from one of our research projects a few years ago. We developed a website informing public about antibiotic resistance. One of the major global problems we all should wise up about and do something about combating antimicrobial resistance. And this website was aimed at general public. And from the evaluations, we were assessing uh, not just the behavior, what they would actually do when, they, uh, when people get ill, just the knowledge and attitudes towards antibiotics. 
And in our research, we have discovered that only 25% of the people who improve their knowledge after using our website as an intervention actually change their attitudes towards prescribing the right way. They would expect not to be prescribed antibiotics for basic or some calls, basically. So the right relationship between attitude and knowledge was only achieved in 25% of people. The rest of the people sometimes improve their knowledge and decrease their attitude while prescribing the wrong way. They would expect even more prescriptions, even though they actually answered logical questions correctly after the intervention better than before the intervention. So it clearly illustrates how emotions and how attitudes are linked to our knowledge, but not directly, not linearly. And if you look at the um, standard um, behavior change theory using the uh, combi, so bringing together our um, capabilities to do some decisions, which is skills or knowledge, our opportunity, we need to be given opportunity to actually do something, such as take a vaccination, but also the motivation. And I think the motivations in the combi is, I think, the most important to answer your questions. What are our motivations? What drives us and how we change the motivations of us as human beings or us as a society, sort of trying to steer the decisions towards more rational and decisions towards our personal well-being and also our global good. Interesting. Okay. Well, wow. Thanks for that intro, Patty, to your position as well. Dan, it's, uh, it's your turn to tell us whether or not we do need to wise up and get more rational about our decisions. So... So we should, uh, but it is, it is a more complex uh, picture. Uh, so, so first of all, as, as Patty and uh, Paul mentioned, we, we have two sides to ourselves and, and not every question should be addressed with the same decision apparatus. Uh, so Patty, I, I don't know you very well, but Paul I know for many years and I love the guy. Now that's an emotional thing. I see him and I smile. And uh, we had an opportunity to talk. But we haven't caught up for a while just before uh, this session, it was delightful, purely emotional, wonderful. Uh, we have things like love, uh, like poetry, uh, trust. We have we have all of these emotions which are amazing, gift giving, and um, we have these amazing activities that have to, nothing to do with rational thinking, right? Uh, rational economists would say, don't give gifts, don't trust anybody. I mean, you know, all of this is 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 not in the rational world. But, but the reality is that we also have to make decisions about other domains as well. And we do, hopefully, will live for a long time. And we have to make decisions about retirement. And there are things like medicine and health. And, and if we don't make rational decisions in those, the failure could be very, very substantial. So there was an analysis in the U.S. Everybody who dies, there's an analysis of what were the causes of death. And they looked at how many people die because of bad decision-making. So for example, if I drive drunk and I bag into a tree, I made a bad decision and I killed myself. Death to bad decision-making. If I drive drunk and I kill somebody else, they did not buy, die because of a bad decision. And they analyzed what is the percentage of death that is caused by bad decision-making. And the amazing thing is that this number has increased dramatically over the years. It went up from about 10% when this data started being collected to about 43% a few years ago. And you can ask the question, are we getting more stupid? How can it be that we die so frequently because of bad decision-making? And the answer is that we're not getting more stupid. 
but the world is becoming better at temptation. And, and if you think about people as having an emotional side and a rational side, we are not living in nature. We're living in a system with other forces around us. And those forces in the capitalistic system want something from us. So you walk down the street, uh, when we walk down the street, but you walk down the street and every coffee shop wants your time, attention, your money right now. Every app wants something from you. You go into the supermarket with a plan, the supermarket also has a plan. And their plan is not the same as yours. And they control how the supermarket works. And they can do pamphlets about the importance of kale. Or they can pump the smell of sugar and fresh baked goods. Which one is going to be better? So, so the reality is that we need to understand that we have to wise up. We have to wise up. We are making decisions that are killing us. I'm not just talking about Corona, I'm talking about diabetes, obesity, texting while driving. Um, and the question is, how can we do it? How can we do it? And I think the answer is not that everybody should just become better. Um, you know, in the physical world, think about the physical world. Uh, Superman could fly, we couldn't, so we invented planes. Uh, Superman could run very fast, we couldn't, we have bicycles and cars. We have chairs, we have heaters, air conditionings, we have all of these things. We have an imperfection, imperfected physical body and we've created an augmented reality around it to support it. Okay, clothes, chairs, airplanes. I think we need the same thing for the mind. In the same way that we don't tell people, please become cold resistant. We shouldn't tell people, please become rational. But we should build tools around us that allow us to, to get the good side of our brain to act and not to fail into the mistakes. So I, I'm struck by the fact that all three of you have completely agreed that we should be being more rational. And I just wanted to point out the fact that that's, that's clearly a shared assumption that we're making, that it is the right direction to go. The, the sort of first theme of this debate was meant to be um, addressing the question, are we motivated by emotion or reason? And which one should we be motivated by? And you've, you know, obviously all touched on that, but Dan, I just thought, you know, you, you'd sort of started discussing, you know, the fact that you feel like we should be utilizing more reason, but perhaps you've indicated that we're actually motivated by emotion, though that might contradict with what you're saying in terms of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a rational process to want to do things that you can't do to some extent, maybe. I don't know. Go ahead. No. So look, the, the reality is that uh, our failures of lack of reason are just very big, right? If you, if you think about what is the cost, uh, if somebody is driving well 99% of the time and 1% uh, of the time they're driving blind or they're doing a selfie while driving or, you know, that has dramatic consequences. So we live in a world in which we're more interconnected with each other. Of course, COVID is one example, but it's true for everything. So our mistakes can be colossal and can hurt lots of other people. So there are areas of life where we should explore. Poetry, love, yeah, sometimes there's damage there too, but, but that's fine. But there are areas of life like corona deniers uh, that, that the, the consequences of actions are a little bit too big. And that's the place where we can't let emotions run wild. Mm. So, I mean, Paul, you mentioned this actually in your opening thing, right, about 
you know, the, the sort of discrepancy between um, people's views on congregations uh, in terms of why they were happening, right? So, you know, what do you think should, you know, is which one of emotional reasons should be a bigger motivator? And is it okay to, you know, flip-flop between them even, as you mentioned? I actually don't see, it's an interesting way to put it, but I don't see reason as a motivator at all. I think reason is an instrument. You have a goal, reason tells you what's true, gives you the proper inferences. If I want to go outside for a walk, but I, it's raining, I don't want to get wet, reason tells me bring an umbrella. If I don't want to get COVID, reason says get a vaccine. But my desires come from my emotions. But emotions can be categorized in different ways. Suppose I want to be a good person. I want to help people. I don't want people to get sick, which I think, I think we, we are good people in that way. That's a primary motivation. But then in order to make it happen, we sometimes have to be very careful about our feelings. So you point to, I wrote, my, my last book was called Against Empathy. And it's kind of a crazy title. Like who could be against empathy? Empathy is caring and love and everything. But the case I make is if you want to make things better, don't listen to your heart. Don't be drawn to help the people you want to help because the people you want to help are going to be attractive. They're going to be your same race. They're going to be from your same community. You're going to help in ways that make the world worse sometimes. If you want to make the world a better place, if you want to satisfy your goals, your emotional goals, you sometimes have to be rational. You have to put aside, aside uh, 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 your short-term gut feelings. And Dan points out that's very difficult to do sometimes. You can't become a better person. So often we should use technological fixes. Here's a simple example. Um, suppose we don't want people to be biased when choosing job candidates. We, we, well, you can just say to people, don't be biased. Don't be racist. Don't be sexist. It's a terrible way to do it. We're very bad at shutting down our biases. But you could do technologies like blind reviewing or, or you know, auctions, where, sorry, auditions where people are behind screens where people's biases can't come into play. We could be smart enough to set things up to get what we want without having to be better people. What, what happens though, you know, so, so we use this technology, the, the computer, you know, tells us this is the candidate, this, this is the person you've employed. And then the technology serves up something to a human being who you are saying is fundamentally unable to, you know, maintain that system all the time. So what, what happens then? You, you know, you serve an unbiased outcome to somebody who can't actually handle their own biases. What, what then? You have outcomes which are less racist, less sexist, more fair that you're happy with. Everybody says, I don't want to hear from a computer. I want to listen to my heart, my gut feelings. But you don't have to be a social psychologist. See, your gut feelings, my gut feelings going to get me to hire a white guy. I'm going to pretend I can't. My gut feelings are going to say, oh, homosexuality, that grosses me out, so I'm against it. My gut feelings are going to say vaccinations, I want mine right away. So offloading them to, it could be a computer, it could be other people who are, who are more objective, is, is on balance a smart thing to do. And you're right, it sometimes doesn't feel right. People always say, let me, let me follow my gut and make the decisions. But that brings you to all sorts of bad consequences. Come on, Dan. I feel like you were together. You had this model in your mind in which the computer brings up a hypothesis. The person doesn't like it and he rejects it. But, but the reality is that uh, once the computer brings up a hypothesis and brings up a candidate, a lot of the barriers goes away. Because as Paul was saying, if you think about a hidden bias that happens during the interview. So 
you remember the, the old uh, research on um, Pygmalion effect. You have a group of kids in a classroom and you tell the teachers, these are geniuses, just amazing. And these kids, ah, not so much. And then the teachers goes ahead and interacts with them. At the end of the semester, you find that these kids were indeed geniuses, these kids were not so much. And then you find out that this was random. But there was hidden biases and the teacher said, oh, these are geniuses. Let's listen to them more. Let's nod to them more. Let's get them to participate more. So a lot of the biases are not outright racism. Like if I just hate people X and the computer serves it to me, that's going to be very tough. But if the process itself is, is biased in a way that I nod more to people who are like me, I, I feel more connection, I smile more, I put more people at ease, then we have a very, very flawed process. Now it's very hard to overcome it naturally because if I, I feel closer to person A than person B, how can, I, how can I not be a little warmer to person A than person B? So we need to, we need to devise those mechanisms. And for me, by the way, that's the hope. The, the real hope is, yes, it will be really nice to fix people. But, you know, we've evolved over a long time. Fixing us is a real, is a real struggle. Um, a sooner, better thing to do is to create technologies that basically let our good side flourish and not let some of our problematic biases show up. Mm, interesting. And like, Patty, yeah, do, why don't you step in? I'd like to hear about what oh, you... Wow, you know, guys, I'm really, I'm really impressed that you think technology will fix everything. We didn't as everything. Computer, we didn't as everything. computer scientist in me, I strongly disagree. We obviously can write programs and we can uh, offload some decisions such as biases onto computers. But we can also write programs which would be biased in themselves. And one of the major challenges faced by machine learning and big data science these days is exactly there is an embedded bias. If you're training an algorithm, the way you start training your training data set obviously will lead into your interventions and your outcomes. So there is an equally enough complex and not fully understood bias when it comes to computer-based decisions, especially in the um, machine learning and the big data world. And I, and I would say... By the way, Patty? Yeah? And I, I think that Paul and I, and I, I hope I'm dragging Paul in this correctly, <laughs> we are not in the black box machine learning algorithm camp for exactly those reasons. There's algorithms and algorithms, the whole world of algorithms. And we, we worry in the same way that an algorithm that is just training naturally might be trained to repeat our mistakes. The, the algorithms that we are trying to promote are algorithms that are very careful to think about which part of the human element we want to bypass and which one we want to live to, to, to humans. So it's not like, here's a black box thing, please re take all my hiring decisions from the last 20 years, repeat that. That, of course, is not, is not the right way. It's a, it has to be a much more nuanced detail mm -hmm. analysis of where do we go wrong. And only if we agree that we go wrong somewhere, we try to fix that patch. Mm -hmm. Does anyone talk to that though? Like, have you been able to change people's motivations in any way by using technology or otherwise? So, I'll give you a most trivial example. I was trying to get people to lose weight, and as a social scientist, you you know you say, how do you get people to lose weight? So okay, so weight loss needs to be every day. You can't lose try to lose weight five days a week and party two days. 
and it has to start in the morning. You can't start after lunch. Uh, so I, I looked at the bathroom scale. And what I learned is that our weight fluctuates a lot throughout time, depends on what we eat and when we went to the bathroom. And also, if you start a diet, it could take about eight days to two weeks for the diet to show up, for the effect to show up. So people go on a diet for three days, they stand on the scale and say, nothing happened. What's going on? I had three days of only lettuce. Like, well, you know, what's, what's going on? So we change the scale to not have numbers. And instead, the scale is showing the trend of the last three weeks. It's generally going up, it's generally going down, nothing happened. And in a very large scale experiment, we show that our scale is much, much better. A scale that shows the number frightens people, confuses them, they stop scaling, standing on it. A scale that shows the trend, people understand the relationship between what they do and the outcomes, and they're much more motivated. In the regular scale, on the six months long trial, people gain 0.3% every month. In our scale, people lost 0.6. They could say that's not a big technology. Yes, this is technology. How do we develop a number that would be intuitive for people to understand and keep them motivated? I was just to say, uh, yes, obviously, I am not a computer scientist against the entire sort of technological achievements of not. So uh, I think your question was thinking, do we actually know if technology uh, can change our decisions, our motivations and our behavior? And one other part of my research is using persuasive games, which is development of software in a sort of uh, field of um, serious games. So games with some kind of purpose and meaning to change people's behavior. So, one of, for example, one of my um, interesting programs was working with surgeons in Nigeria and made them change their decisions about antibiotic prescribing to increase compliance with WHO guidelines at the point of care. And the beauty of, it, of the technological intervention is it also collects the data about how people are actually changing the behavior seamlessly through interaction with the technology. So we could actually demonstrate, yes, this app has increased compliance in three different hospitals. So you can definitely develop technology which fulfills exactly the purpose you said. It makes you think about your decision not being quite correct, in this case not compliant, and gives you the opportunity to change it. But I wanted to say that I think we have focused too much on technology as this was like the, uh, the, the silver bullet. From um, a behavior um, perspective, there's a behavior wheel um, uh, framework looking at what all components of our individual societal, legal and financial incentives need to be in place to change certain decision and attitude. So, for example, if you look at one of the most successful public health program, which was smoking cessation, it took 20 years. It took 20 years to change legislation and make it make it not possible to advertise cigarettes to young people. It obviously has changed the way we are branding cigarettes, making it clear that they they kill um, they they kill people. It also have gone into changing the way we are obviously socializing, banning smoking in offices and in public spaces, in restaurants and pubs was a major step 10 years ago. But now we have changed. I'm speaking for kind of Europe and uh, I would say the, uh, the Western world. We have changed the attitude so much that smoking is, uh, uh, is no longer cool. 
It's something where the behavior in a longitudinal trajectory has been changed. But all these components had to be together, not just the individual information for a smoker telling him he or she will die or develop uh, lung cancer. I'll, I'll just, I mean, I, I, I think that that's great. I, I think in some way technology could do a lot, but for reasons uh, you pointed out, uh, there's all sorts of issues of it. The broader thing that I think we all agree on, but is really worth pursuing is figuring out some way to, to take it away from, to make us more rational. And one way to make us more rational is offload some things onto technology or computers. Another way is to change practices, customs, laws. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, we're at a very, science is a great success story of rationality. And it's because science is a very unnatural cultural institution that works in bizarre ways, often imperfectly. But somehow it lets us discover things about the world. There are customs, um, ways of deliberating. So you, people think of technology and they have computers and everything, but another human invention is you get 10 people together in a room. You say, we have to do a policy for the distribution of vaccines. How should we make a decision as a group? And then I think social sciences have an enormous amount to say. And a lot of what we end up doing are figuring out mechanisms to maximize rational liberation and diminish short-term emotional desires. Thinking in terms of cost benefits is a great thing. I'm going to jump in there because actually, so, you know, the point of this question was to sort of address whether or not we're motivated by emotional reason. You guys have all agreed on that. So, you know, the next theme was meant to be, is our attitude towards risk rational? And and has it been throughout the pandemic? And as you've started touching on that subject anyway, I'd like you to, to finish sort of your thought train on, on that sort of trajectory. So, are we, are we rational about risk? And actually, specifically in the context of the pandemic, how has that been, in your opinion? No, we're terrible about risk. We're terrible deliberators when it comes to risk. This is, this is, there's all sorts of things we're saying which are controversial, but this is not controversial. We radically overestimate the risk of low-frequency events that are salient. And in fact, you know, one thing about COVID is if you're 25 years old and you get COVID, most likely nothing bad will happen to you. You will, most likely you will not die. The odds of you dying for 25 years old is strikingly low. But we hear salient cases, and all of a sudden people are terrified that a 25-year-old will die. And similarly, when, when a vaccine comes out and is in common use, no doubt some people are going to get sick and die. There's already been, been people harmed by the vaccines. They're low-frequency events, but they could get blown out of proportion and lead to vaccine avoidance. So thinking rationally about risk is absolutely critical. And this is one thing we do poorly. We're just not built to think statistically in a right statistical terms about risk. Uh, or to do trade-offs between, you know, the damage caused by a lockdown, which is, you know, non-trivial, and the damage caused by, by the virus is certainly not trivial. This is where we're at our weakest. So, I, you know, here's a question then. So let's assume that I'm, I'm assuming the other two on, on the panel agree with that. Is there anything that you think that, you know, governments could do to capitalize on, on that sort of inbuilt irrationality to increase the fear of COVID-19 and like reduce transmission? You know, I feel like the media, at least in the UK, you know, the posters I've been seeing have definitely gone from just very passive you know, wash your hands stuff to be tr- really trying to trigger a fear response, at least, at least well, from what I've seen in central London. So yeah, Patty, for example, what do you think, Dan, what are your thoughts on that? Governments leveraging our ir- irrationality for good or maybe not for good? So, so first of all, um, you know, we are in kind of starting year two of COVID. 
we're not we're not in the beginning of year one and we can't erase what has happened in the past um, so for example there's lots of history of lack of trust of uh, different governments and um, COVID is is a public good action uh, if you know if 20% of the people don't pay taxes, 20% of the people don't pay taxes, we have 20% less taxes. If 20% of the people don't adhere to social distancing, it's not 20% damage, they can damage lots of people, right? So, so, so COVID is, is about, is about a, a public action. And, you know, we've been waiting for a vaccine, but the reality is, you know, some, like, it's amazing. We, we, we didn't find as, as, you know, collectively, collectively, we didn't find the ability to, to slow down. Like, you know, there were still weddings and gatherings and people were, it's, it's kind of amazing. But if you think about the damage that, that we have caused to ourselves in this, in this regard. Now, thankfully, at some point, you know, everybody will get vaccinated, hopefully. But, but until then, like, how couldn't we find the ability to delay gratification, right? Say, okay, just hold on for two months. Like, if we all held on for two months, think how, how good things would have, would have been. But in terms of fear, you know, fear is a very good motivator, can't sustain for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason it can't sustain for a long time is the experience. So imagine that I'm terrified of COVID. I'm terrified of COVID and I go to the supermarket and somebody doesn't have a mask and they cough. And I'm really worried and I'm anxious. Uh, but I go home and Nothing bad happened. It's a small probability event. Not everybody that cough will get me, will get me sick. Now my experience is that I'm less worried. So, so ironically, uh, countries where have that have controlled it quite well in the beginning, uh, they had an experience that I don't know anybody who got sick. Right, and and if you think about how much do I learn from the newspaper and how much do I learn from my experience, my experience is usually the the thing that people take more seriously. So people have their own experience and then they are less careful and less careful. And every time you do something where you're not careful and you don't get sick, you learn the wrong lesson. And that continues. So I think I think the fear is not a long-term strategy. You can't get people to be afraid for a year and, and, and uh, consistently, right? You can get them to be afraid from time to time, but consistently fear is not, is not effective. What you need to do, what we should have done, is get collective action. We have the capacity to care a lot about other people. But we have to see that everybody cares a lot about other people, and we're not the only suckers who are sacrificing things for the collective action. I think that's what we should have, we should have worked on. Interesting. Patty, you look like you're agreeing. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, yeah. I absolutely, I absolutely agree, actually. You know, I think it's important to understand we are not making a decision about just ourselves when it comes to our response to the pandemics, we are making decisions as a member of a society. And even as you said, Paul, you know, the 25 year old, a healthy uh, teenager or 20 or something could actually just behave recklessly because he might be at very, very low risk himself. He can infect someone who is vulnerable. So the responsibility for 
vulnerable elderly or other members of our society really need to be embedded in our values. And I agree with you, Dan, that we as a society should have much closer, much stronger actually come together to underpin those social values, the community values, which are essential to implement any governmental measures. And I think the government in the UK has completely broken this, uh, this rule. People have been trying so hard in the first lockdown to really not see their relatives. Stories of people who haven't seen their dying relatives because they have been compliant with, uh, with the um, strict uh, lockdown rules. And then we see Dominic Cumming driving, you know, famously to, to Barnard Castle for his wife's, uh, wife's birthday. So suddenly the whole thing about why am I sacrificing myself when the privileged ones are breaking the rules suddenly was a game changer in the UK. And people became much more less compliant and obviously they much less trusted the government since these, these uh, information was coming out. So it's also kind of the attitude towards the trust, not just the rational decisions and the policy implementations governments could obviously have done better. Like the test and trace isn't working in the UK. So the self-isolation must be supported financially. If you can't afford to self-isolate, why would you get tested? <laughs> you don't want to know that you are positive because you have to continue working. So the government has to put in all the components to make the collective action the central of our decision-making and values, but make it technically feasible for people to do so, but the, the, the government can't breaking the rules themselves. I think there's just a lot of really good points here. And one point that, that I think has been emphasized by both of you is we're social creatures. It's, it's, it's not true. It's a terrible lie to say people are purely selfish. People will do a lot to help others. They'll do a lot to help their family and their friends and even strangers in their community. And if you tell the 25 year old, you're safe, but you don't want to get other people infected. If you do this in the right way, we're social, we want, we want to help. But this cuts both ways. And you're talking about the UK experience, which is if we feel others are cheating, and it's the same thing with regard to, to climate change. If we feel others are, are benefiting by breaking the rules and breaking the social contract, nobody wants to be a sucker. You know, if I have to cancel my wedding because of COVID, and I can't see my parents because of COVID, yet I see other people, people in power, having you know getting together and having parties and everything i feel like a sucker and nobody wants to feel like a sucker and so so trust is is important it can be a powerful motivator but when it's shattered it makes people act almost vindictively sometimes even against their own interests i want to add uh, one one other thing so you know we both i think don't take risk seriously enough and too seriously so um, let's take a terrible case. Let's say COVID would kill 5% of the world population. Um, and let's say it would happen quickly and people were not going to hospital beds. They would just die on the spot. So COVID would spread. People would die immediately. Uh, there would not be any challenges in hospitals. And then you ask the question of how much are we willing to pay to prevent that. Now, the reality is that in public health, we have numbers for how much it costs to save lives. Uh, in every country, uh, for example, lots of people die from infections acquired in hospitals. And we know quite well how much money is needed to finish that problem, right? And it's not that much. And nevertheless, uh, we don't seem to have to will to do that. Or imagine that an alien came to earth three years ago, and the alien wondered, these earthlings, how much do they care about the elderly? How much are they helping them out? 
What are the allowances for old age? What are the benefits? How much do they visit them? You know, the, the alien would look at revealed preferences and say, you know, how much do these people care about the elderly? The alien would have concluded not that much as a society. All of a sudden comes COVID and you say the alien that came now, say, how much are these people care about the elderly? You say a ton. They're willing to, to mortgage their future. They're, they're going on lockdowns. They're doing all kinds of things for that. And, and I think, you know, on one hand, I'm really, really sorry that we couldn't get our act together. But because this prolonged pain is we're kind of getting the worst of both worlds. We could have had the shorter pain and, and gotten much better. Um, so we're getting both the prolonged pain and the economic devastation. But I also think that we are in... in in, in many ways um, have a very different set of preferences during mm. COVID than we have for uh, the lives of others in, in you know, just, just a short time ago in, or in other domains, like you mentioned drinking and, and of course smoking and obesity and diabetes and all of these problems that we wouldn't have imagined spending 11% of the world's GDP on, on solving obesity, for example, or diabetes. So actually, I want to jump in on that. So, it, you know, there's some really interesting numbers about, you know, alcohol and tobacco consumption and how much it impacts um, the health of our society and how much we've, you know, already put into it. Patty raised the 20-year campaign to sort of, you know, get rid of smoking in public places. So, you know, I, the question is really, if our attitudes to risk were actually truly rational, surely wouldn't alcohol and tobacco consumption sort of disappear overnight if we did the maths? As somebody with a whiskey bottle behind my right shoulder, <laughs> uh, I feel I should speak out on this. Um, the, the alcohol and tobacco issues are complicated in a way that the COVID issue isn't. Nobody wants COVID. It's just, you know, it's, there's, no, there's no good to it. But alcohol and tobacco give us pleasure. And, uh, and you know, nobody wants to be obese, but food gives us pleasure. So there's kind of a balance. And that's what makes these things unusually difficult. There are issues of the balance between pleasure and pain. There's issues of human freedom and so on. So I think, I think in some way deaths due to alcohol and, and, uh, and tobacco and so on are a difficult comparison to make to the COVID case for that reason. Hmm. I think, Paul, you would, you would agree that people would not overconsume if people were perfectly rational. You would say people would, would, would balance uh, consumption and people would not uh, become alcoholics, for example, or people would... People, nobody wants to become an alcoholic. Yeah. People may over... I was pushing back, you may want to overconsume during certain occasions, but yes. nobody wants to become an alcoholic. Similarly, people love to enjoy good food. Nobody wants to be obese. So I agree with that. And nobody wants... And people might enjoy a cigar or a cigarette, but nobody wants lung cancer. So in the extremes, they are pure evils. But, but the fact is, these bad things are caught up with good things. And in some way, it's, 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 of course, there's a complicated trade-off right now with, with COVID, which is the suffering due to lockdown. So, you know, every society has some, every society I know has some sort of lockdown, but, but you have to balance it in some way so it's not to cause unnecessary suffering. Do we think that culture is going to become more emotional or more rational as we go forward? Do we think this pandemic is going to cause us to be more rational? You know, that's in the whole argument throughout this pandemic. Or do you think there might be a bit of a backlash and suddenly people think, you know what, this lockdown's really made me realize that all that matters is how I feel really more than anything else. So if you could just sort of start, yeah, telling me your thoughts on that. Do you think we're going to become more rational, more emotional? Patty, you haven't spoken in a little. Mm. What do you think? Interesting question. 
I think we want to stay as we are as a as a humankind. We will remain rational and we will be emotional. The kind of mixture of the rational and emotion will be post-COVID world present as much as it was before COVID. I think the change we have observed in the last year, which is a positive change, is there was a regain on of trust in science, in authorities, and um, in some cases in politicians. You know, and you Paul said every society is in a lockdown. That's not true. New Zealand isn't. So New Zealand had a very good female leader, I must say so, who actually managed to get rid of it very, very quickly. And then the society is economically growing and people are enjoying their lives as normal. So not every society is in a lockdown. So I think the kind of trust in the right quality of leadership, and I think the New Zealand is a good example, and the increased trust in a scientific value, scientific voice and experts, which have been a bit De, uh, devalued in the in the last kind of post-truth um, political world, I think is a positive outcome of the pandemics. So I think in this way, we will become um, more rational because we again will trust the people who know more about the subject than we do. But I think we will still remain very emotional. Mm. It, you know, it, it's it's tempting to say, oh, it's a bit of both, it's complicated, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna be with Patty, I'm gonna go for, we'll be more rational. In a, in a broad span, I think we kind of, Western civilization has had quite a moment recently with Trump and Brexit and all sorts of things. And I, I see a, a kind of swing of the pendulum where we are going to trust experts more. There's going to be more respect for science and more respect for rational governorship. I mean, obviously, both parts of our nature will shine, but I, 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 I would answer rational. Okay. Dan, with the last minute. So I, I worry... And, and the thing that worries me is that in almost every society, um, there have been fractions who are, by their behavior, uh, costing tremendous amounts for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, this um, pain is not going to be quickly forgotten. So if you think about a country with a small group of people who are COVID deniers, who had a particular religious belief, ethnicity, um, political belief, and by by this action, they are causing pain for everybody else. Uh, I think this will create more separation. Mm -hmm. So you know what's what's beautiful about human beings is that we care about other people. It's an emotional side, but the rational side is that we really need each other. We really need collective action. We have to have we have to work together in modern society. We can't we can't have things when we don't work together. And I worry that this aspect of worrying together has been eroded and it will take a really long time to fix. Well, that's a very sobering note to, to end upon, but um, it falls to me to thank all three of you to sort of help us, um, you know, start negotiating this sort of difficult terrain between rationality and emotionality. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.